Good job, everybody. That sounded pretty good for not having, for us, a lot of us not having the words. Um, I mean, honestly, there are a lot of people in the world who are worshiping God in really awful circumstances this morning. And we have it so good here to be able to worship as we do together. Um, even without power, it's not, you know, it's nothing, right? Um, all right, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13 this morning. Um, we've been looking at the book of Matthew, the first eight chapters. One of the things that Matthew has been doing is he's been kind of hitting this kind of thing over and over again, that Jesus is the Son of God. This Jesus is the Son of God. And one of the ways that Matthew does that is he, he reminds them over and over again how Jesus fulfills all of these verses in the Old Testament, all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. And that's one of the things that Matthew does throughout his entire book. So the first eight chapters, Matthew's been doing that. He's also been showing us how Jesus is, his authority, his power exists over all things, over all different spheres of life, you know, over the physical world as he heals people, over nature, over the spiritual world. Last week we saw how he cast out demons and demonstrated his authority over the demons. And, uh, now we get to chapter 9, and, and up until this point, a lot of people have been flocking to Jesus. They've been, you know, the crowds have been gathering around him. He's, he's very popular because he's been healing everybody and, and everything. And finally, we, when we get to chapter 9, we begin to see some people who aren't as impressed with Jesus, with what Jesus is inviting them to see about him. So the question for us is, what will we see as we look at Jesus this morning? What will we see? Listen to Matthew 9 as I read, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at your word, as we think about it. We pray that you would help us to see you more clearly. That you would help us to see ourselves more clearly. That you would help us to see others as you want us to. Father, we, we need your spirit right now to work in us. So we pray that you would help us now to behold you through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a scene from the cartoon Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown and, and Lucy and Linus. They're, they're all laying on their backs on this little tiny mound of grass, this tiny hill. They're all laying on their backs, looking up into the sky, and they're having a conversation. And, and Lucy starts off the conversation by saying this. She says, if you use your imagination, you can see lots of things in the cloud formations. What do you think, what, what do you, think you see, Linus? And they're all looking there, you know, up in the sky. And Linus responds. He says, well, 
Those clouds up there look to me like the map of the British Honduras in the Caribbean. <laughs> and immediately, Charlie Brown like, picks his head up, and he's got the, you know, the worried you know, lines around his eyes. And then, then Linus continues. He says, that cloud up there looks a little like the profile of Thomas Eakins, the famous painter and sculptor. And again, Charlie's looking stressed. And that group of clouds over there gives me the impression of the stoning of Stephen. I can see the Apostle Paul standing there to one side. Charlie Brown is totally stressing out. And then Lucy says, uh-huh, that's very good. What do you see in the clouds, Charlie Brown? And Charlie says, well, I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I changed my mind. <laughs> and this scene is an example of an everyday reality, the fact that all of us see things very differently, you know? And when it comes to looking at things in clouds or maybe looking at an ink plot, ink plot like a Rorschach test, you know, it's perfectly acceptable for us to kind of see whatever we want to see, you know, whether it's the stoning of Stephen or a horsey. But um, as, as we look at this passage, I think one of the things that Jesus points out is that as we look at others and as we look at ourselves, he would say that there is a right way and a wrong way to look, to see, a right way and a wrong way to see. And so as he interacts with the Pharisees, I think this is what happens. What does Jesus encourage them to see more clearly? And, and what is he encouraging us to see more clearly? Um, I would say, first of all, he, 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 he's trying to challenge them on seeing others more clearly. That's the first thing he, he deals with as he talks to the, to the Pharisees. He wants them to see others more clearly. This entire confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees begins with how they are seeing him and how they see Matthew and how they see the people that Matthew is with, all the people at, that, at the meal that Jesus is eating with, right? Um, in verse 11, they, they don't even have the courage to talk to Jesus directly about this. You notice this. They talk to Jesus' disciples. And what do they say in verse 11? They say, uh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, as, as, as the Pharisees look at Jesus and they look at the tax collectors and the sinners, all they see is what is bad. They, they, they see these guys, and, and they, when they talk about the tax collectors and sinners, they're talking about basically a group of people who didn't follow the code of law that they followed. All of these specific, strict rules that they followed to, to make sure that they were pure. And so these people didn't follow all those rules for different reasons, and so they were seen as unclean. They were seen as unacceptable for the rest of, of the worship of God and, and, and the community of God's people. And so, so they just, you know, these people were in a different class from the Pharisees. And so as they looked at Jesus and they looked at these people, they kind of looked at them. Number one, as they looked at Jesus, they looked at him in a, in a very appraising way. They, they were looking at him appraisingly. You know, when you appraise a gem, you're trying to figure out how much it's worth or you appraise a, lot, a plot of land or a house, you know, you're just trying to decide how much is this worth? How valuable is this thing? And so as they look at Jesus, they're looking at him appraisingly. They're trying to figure out, you know, how important is he? How valuable is he? How much should we really listen to him? And, and as they look at him, they're like, wait, he's hanging out with these other people. You know, should we really listen to him? Should we really pay attention to him? Is he really all that important or worthy? So they're looking at him appraisingly. And as they look at Matthew and the tax collectors and the sinners, how are they looking at them? They're looking at them very critically, right? All they see when they see them is the flaws. All they see when they see them is the sin. 
So they're looking, as, as they look at people, they're either praising them for how much, how worthy they are, or they're, you know, criticizing them. Look, they're looking at them critically. And I think that represents, in a very real way, how we tend to look at people as well. We tend to look at people in an appraising way. We kind of, as we interact with people, as we meet people, as we, as we, uh, as we get to know people, we kind of, we're not, we, we, we don't think about it this way. We don't really answer this question, like, how much is this person worth to me? But I think that's what's going on under the surface, you know? You know, how, how smart is this person, really? How interesting is this person? How, how funny is this person? You know, we, we're, we're kind of like assessing, is this person really worth my time and investment in getting to know them and spending time with them? We are drawn towards, we gravitate towards people that we feel like are going to benefit us because we get along with them, because they like the things we like, you know, we're, we're praising them. How worthy are they of my attention and my time? But, but even more than that, I think we tend to look at people really critically. We all tend to, you know, when we look at the people around us, it's so easy for us to spot their flaws, to spot their weaknesses, to spot their failures. You know, we're, we're going to talk after the service. Some of us are going get, to get together and talk about doing an Easter egg hunt. We'd love to have you join us for that. Um, but when, we, when we've done the Easter egg hunts here in the past, how do we hide the eggs? We don't. We just throw them out there all on the grass, right? There's just eggs everywhere. So it's, it's impossible not to find an egg for a kid, not to find a bunch of eggs. And, I can, and, and that's kind of how we see the sin of other people. It's not hard for us to see it. No, that person is so pushy. That person is so controlling. They're so loud. They talk so much. You know, they're so insensitive. They don't think about other people. You know, it's so easy for us to spot what we don't like in other people, to spot what is wrong. So easy to be critical. But when it comes to like looking for something good in somebody, it's more like, you know, the search for the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. It's like... (laughs) With our kids, Kim has started something recently with our little kids. When they say something mean, they call somebody a name, they then have to say something or maybe write some, like three things that are good about the person. And it's like pulling teeth, you know? It's brutal how hard it is for them to come up with one thing, let alone two. I mean, three things, they're sitting there forever. It's so easy to see what is wrong. It's so easy to see the sin. So easy. And I think this is where Jesus challenges the Pharisees and he challenges us. We need to see people differently than that. As Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he challenges them to see differently. Basically, I would argue, he challenges them and us to see people as objects of love. He challenges us to see them primarily as objects of love, as as people that we can love as people that we can help, as people that we can show mercy to. He quotes this verse, down in 13, verse 13. He says to the Pharisees, he says, go and learn what this means. He's like, guys, you need to, you know, this is, you've maybe read this before, but you need to rethink what this actually means. You should know this. It's from Hosea. We read it earlier. Chuck read it earlier in Hosea 6. This is Hosea 6, 6. God is saying to the people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And as you read Hosea, as you read the context of that verse, what 
Hosea is rebuking the people for is the fact that they, they're following all of the right rules of worship, of sacrifice, you know, as they worship God. They're doing all the right things. They look good in that sense, but they don't really love God. They don't love God. And the way that Hosea says he knows they don't love God is because they're not loving the people around them. The fact that they don't love God is reflected in the fact that they, they don't care about the people around them and their needs. They're not moving towards the people around them in the midst of their need to show mercy. That word mercy in a Hosea is, is the Hebrew word hesed, which is often translated steadfast love. And it's, it's a word that, that is probably closest in the Hebrew to the New Testament idea of grace. And God says, I don't want people who look good because they're obeying all the rules. I want people primarily who love well, who are moving towards other with grace and mercy. And so if we're doing that, the way that we need to look at people is not appraisingly or critically. We need to to see people as those who need grace, who need mercy, who need love, who need my help. One of my favorite lines um, from a movie, it's, it's from the movie Wonder. You don't have to know what the movie's about to know what the line, to understand the line, but, but I found out later that this is, a, this is a quote that goes back many, many, many years and nobody's really sure who first said it. Um, it was probably first said by a, a Scottish pastor named John Watson, who's also an author. But it goes something like this. It says, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And I think there's a lot of biblical weight to that quote, that statement. Every single person we meet, we need to recognize, instead of jumping to conclusions about all the bad things about them, we need to recognize that they need mercy, that they need grace, that they need love that they're, they're, they're struggling, they have, they're fighting, they have burdens of their own. And my job is to move towards them to help, help them carry those things, to fight alongside them. And this is what God desires. He, he desires people who see others as those in need. Is this how you see people? Is this how you see the people that you work with that maybe are kind of hard to get along with? Is this how you see your boss? Is this how you see people who you disagree with violently? Like you'd never want to have to sit across the table with this person for a prolonged period of time. Is this how you see those people? Is this how you see the people that, you know, just annoy you to no end? You know? Those of you who are in in high school, junior high school, is this how you see the other kids in school? Maybe those who are even bullies. Maybe those who seem kind of like outcasts. Is this how you see them? This is how Jesus wants us to see them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But this is the thing. Seeing others clearly is absolutely tied to how we see ourselves. And that's part of the problem with the Pharisees. It's so easy to spot the, the, the failure and the flaws in these other people to, to kind of just group them as just a bunch of sinners, you know? Because as they think of themselves, they, they think they're pretty good. When they, when they look at themselves, they don't think they have any problems. They think they have it all together. They think they're good. 
And I think this is what Jesus is pointing out to them when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And at the end of verse 13, what does he say? He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying to the Pharisees, guys, the reason I'm hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners is because they're the ones who know that they need something, that they need me. They need what I'm bringing. They need healing. They need love. They need God's presence in their lives. And they're at least a little bit aware of that. See, he's not saying that the Pharisees aren't sick. He's basically pointing out the fact that the Pharisees aren't aware of the fact that they're sick. That the fact that they have a desperate disease that causes them to be absorbed with themselves. That causes them to think that they have it all together. And they don't need mercy. They don't need mercy. And I think this is what it means for us to see ourselves clearly. To see ourselves clearly is to understand that we, each and every one of us, is absolutely sinful. That we are more preoccupied with ourselves than God calls us to be. That, that, that we are more preoccupied with ourselves than we are preoccupied with God and what he wants. And that is a disease that we think of ourselves first and foremost. This is what it means to see ourselves clearly, to understand that we are our greatest problem is that we need God to forgive us. That is our greatest, most fundamental problem. Not all the other people around me, not all of the major crazy issues in the world, but actually I am my greatest problem. My own heart. The fact that it's turned in on itself. The fact that I'd rather think primarily of myself rather than other people and God. And, and I need to see that about myself. I, I, I cannot interact with Jesus in a meaningful way unless I see that about myself, first and foremost. Right? Who is Jesus eating with? Jesus is eating with the people who know they're not good enough. That's who he's eating with. That's who he's hanging out with. And so if I want to experience any kind of mercy from God, any of, of, of the forgiveness that, that Jesus provides, it has to begin with recognizing that, that I can't help myself and that, and, that, and that I'm deep down, my heart is really dark. My heart is really dark. And I need the healing power of Jesus to work in my life. That's how... We need to see ourselves clearly. So we need to see others clearly. We need to see ourselves clearly. But I think I would, I would be doing us all an injustice if I just stopped there. Because I think the most important thing that we need to see in this passage, we need to see how Jesus sees us. We need to see how Jesus sees us. Think about, there's this one simple verse, this is verse nine. It's, it's so basic. There's not much to it. Just as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. There's not much to it, right? It's pretty simple, pretty basic verse. But I would argue that this verse had to have been filled with all sorts of, of meaning and emotion from Matthew. You realize who's writing this book. See, in chapter four, Matthew wrote about the calling of the first disciples, the, the guys who were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, John, Andrew. In chapter 10, 
Matthew talks about the, the rest of the disciples, all the disciples who were called to follow Jesus. But here, this is an autobiographical verse here. Matthew is talking about how Jesus called him. And I can guarantee you, as Matthew wrote these words, he could probably remember that day as if it was yesterday for him. Think about how, how incredibly significant these words to Matthew, these words were to Matthew. First, to, to think about that, you have to think about, first of all, how did everybody else look at Matthew? How did everybody else see Matthew? Oh, yay. Um, how did everybody else see Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector, right? And so when the Pharisees kind of call out the people Jesus is eating with, they say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're, they're really talking about a group of people who didn't follow the codes of purity that they did, right? But they single tax collectors out in this group, you know? They weren't just regular sinners. They were hated. Because tax collectors in those days, they, they, weren't, they didn't just not follow the rules of purity. They were actually friends with, allies with the Romans, the enemies of the Israelites, the occupying, oppressing people of Israel. And the tax collectors worked for the Romans. So they were, they were allies with the Romans. They served the Romans. They helped the Romans. So that was one reason to hate them. But on top of that, tax collectors generally were very wealthy. And they were wealthy because the Romans said, okay, you need to collect this much. And the, and the tax collectors would turn around and they would then, on top of that, collect more than they needed to. Because the regular... Israelite didn't know how much they were supposed to pay. And so tax collectors would, would be extremely greedy and self-centered, and they would, they would get rich off of the backs of the Israelite people. And so you can understand that the Israelites hated them. Hated them. And so can you imagine how people used to look at Matthew? How did they used to look at Matthew? They looked at him with hatred. They looked at him with, with, with skepticism, distrust, bitterness, that's what Matthew saw when he looked around and, and he saw people looking at him. What do you think that would have done, what would do to a person? When, when everybody, everywhere you look, the people around you are looking at you with hatred. I would think that would, you know, create some interpersonal issues for you. You would probably have a hard time kind of like getting along with people. You might have your own hatred, your own bitterness that you harbored. You'd probably have, you'd be very defensive, Right? Or you'd just be incredibly arrogant and oblivious. And what happens? So, I mean, this guy, I, I would guess he's, he's probably not the easiest guy to like really hang out with. But then in verse nine, Matthew recalls, as Jesus passed on from there, what does Matthew remember? He saw a man called Matthew. What Matthew remembers is that Jesus saw him. Matthew remembers that Jesus saw him. And I guarantee you that he remembered everything about how that looked. How Jesus looked at him. Jesus saw him, and Jesus didn't look away. Jesus didn't whisper to his disciples. Jesus didn't kind of go out of his way to avoid Matthew. Jesus walked straight towards Matthew. And Jesus welcomed him. Jesus accepted him. Jesus loved him. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Matthew? 
how, how incredibly unique that would have been, that the way that Jesus looked at him without judgment, without hatred, with love. This is how Jesus saw Matthew. And, and I think we need to see ourselves in this passage as well. This is how Jesus sees you. No matter how rough around the edges you are, no matter how many issues you have, no matter how messy your life is, no matter how hard to love you might be, Jesus sees you and he accepts you and he loves you. He sees you and he's like, I want to hang out with that person. I want to sit down and eat with that person. I want to spend real time with that person. I want to be friends. That's how Jesus sees you. No matter how hard you are to love, no matter how rough around the edges. And it's crucial that we understand that that is how Jesus sees us. In, in, the, in the midst of understanding our sin, that Jesus sees us and he loves us like that. That will transform us. That will set us free to be able to, to see ourselves even more clearly and to see others more clearly. Because we need to realize that as Jesus sees Matthew that way and he sees us that way, it comes at a cost to him. You realize it, it cost him. It cost Jesus to see Matthew this way. Even in this passage, we see it. As Jesus sees Matthew and welcomes him and accepts him and then eats with him, what happens? Matthew's guilt and his shame rubs off on Jesus. And so that's how everybody else sees Jesus as well. Everybody else, the Pharisees, start lumping Jesus in with the, with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's one of them. And they start judging him. And you realize that is exactly what happens on the cross as well. As Jesus dies on the cross, what happens on the cross is that Jesus allows our guilt, our shame to spread to him. And he is judged for it. He allows himself to be judged for our sin and our guilt. He allows himself to be lumped in with us as a sinner and to experience justice. And it's only because of that that we can know that when Jesus looks at us, he looks at us only with love and we are forgiven. And if we can tap into that, if we can begin to see Jesus looking at us like that, honestly, it will change us. And this is where I want to finish. It, it changed Matthew. It changed him. As you can imagine, Matthew was a, a man, a tax collector. He was, he was very likely very greedy, felt very self-centered. He was the center of his universe, probably in a lot of ways. But it's so interesting. As you read this passage and you compare it uh, to, uh, to Luke's, description of what happens here. And in, in the book of Luke, Luke also describes the calling of Matthew. And there's some differences in them. In, in, in Luke's description, it talks about how Jesus tells Matthew to follow him. And it says he rose and left everything and followed him. In Luke's description of Matthew's, you know, following Jesus, it really is a testimony to, to how much Matthew sacrificed and you look here and you're like, Jesus said, follow me. And, and Matthew just puts in here, he rose and followed him. <laughs> he didn't even think about the stuff that he left behind. 
Jesus was the center of his universe. And also, and Luke, Luke goes out of his way to point out that Matthew actually hosts this huge banquet for Jesus where he invites everybody to come, everybody to come. Matthew is the host of the party that they give for Jesus. Here, Matthew doesn't even mention the fact that he's the one who puts the party on, right? He says, as Jesus reclined a table in the house, you're like, whose house is this? Suddenly, Matthew is not the center of his universe. Jesus is the center of Matthew's universe. And it's all because of how Jesus saw him. And so we are encouraged, as, as we often are in, in, in God's word with his, by his spirit, we are encouraged to imagine ourselves as well. To imagine, how is it that Jesus sees me? To, to really ponder, to think about, to meditate the fact that as he looks at me, he doesn't look at me with judgment, but with complete love and acceptance. That, that truly does. It sets me free to see myself really clearly, to, to actually realize that I, as, as I think about my flaws, as I think about my sin and my failures, I'm actually way worse than I even realize. And yet as I think about Jesus, he loves me more than I can imagine, more than I can imagine. And, and as that takes hold of my heart, that actually is what gives me the power to see other people as I should to actually look at other people as those that I can love first and foremost. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in us. We need your spirit, Father, to, to work in our hearts, to help us to see. Apart from this work of your spirit, we are blind. We are blind to our own sin. We are blind to your calling upon us to, to love others, we are blind to your grace. Open our eyes. Help us to behold you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to meet Jesus at the table. We are going to recline at table with him as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As you came in, hopefully you got the elements handed to you. If you did not get them and you want to take part in communion, just raise your hand and Larry will bring them over to you. Just keep your hand raised up and Larry will get them to you as soon as he can. He's coming. Over here too, Larry. As he's finishing handing those, handing those out, we're going to take a moment to confess our sin. And when we do this, the point of this is, is to remind ourselves that we need to look at our own hearts to see ourselves clearly. Because if we don't see ourselves clearly, we will never appreciate how Jesus sees us. So we're going to pray the prayer of, con of confession that's in your order of worship out loud together. And then we'll have a silent time of confession. So please pray with me. Oh, eternal God and merciful Father, we humbly come into the presence of your majesty to confess our innumerable wrongs and spiritual bankruptcy. We know that your merciful arms are infinite, reaching out to hold whoever comes. And so we are encouraged to call for your help because we trust in Jesus Christ, our mediator and sacrificial lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. Please, Lord, forgive us all our sins for Jesus' sake. Look with compassion upon our frailty 
and wash us in the pure fountain of Jesus' blood. Then cover us with the robe of Christ's innocence and righteousness. And as we make a fresh start, give us new minds and eager, submissive hearts. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we now take a moment in the silence to privately confess our individual sins to you.